Good morning, Grace Hill. How is everyone? Thank you. Good to see all of you this morning. Uh, my name's Alan. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Grace Hill. And uh, I wasn't here last week. I was um, down in the Dominican Republic with uh, a group uh, from our church. And we had uh, an amazing trip. And we're actually really excited to share with you how that trip went uh, next Sunday. So uh, if you come, Noah Joyner is a, a missionary that we support down in the Dominican Republic. He's actually going to be here uh, preaching, and we're going to uh, be able to talk about that. So I'm excited to be able to do that next week. So make sure that you're here uh, for that. Uh, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9. So if you have a Bible Go ahead and open it up. Uh, we're going to be reading a good chunk of that chapter, so I just really encourage you to have it open on your lap, have it open on your phone. Um, we'll have the verses on the screen behind me, but it might be better for you just to have it to reference uh, down on your lap as we go and we study this uh, chapter. Um, if I were to ask you the question, what is the number one thing that as Christians, if you identify as Christian, or as the church, that we need to stand up for and stand against in our culture today? Loaded question. What is the number one thing that we need to stand against, that we need to be firm, that, that we cannot move off of as Christians, as the church in our culture? What, what would you put into that category or into that blank. You know, maybe we would say it's, it's the moral slide of our culture, and we need to stand against that moral slide. Maybe we could put that in there. I don't know, maybe some would definitely put an ideology, like political ideology. We've got to stand up for a particular ideology and, and defend and make sure that it doesn't fail. We could put lots of things into that blank. We could put racism into that blank. You could put injustice into that blank. Yeah, I, I don't know what it is, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this morning to make an argument for what I think the, the Bible would say and is the number one thing as Christians and as the church, we need to stand up against, be unwavering on this. And I'm going to argue that the thing we need to stand against is the law. The law. Or the Bible is going to define it as the old covenant. Now that's a big theological term. I will define it for all of us very simply in just a few moments from the scripture. But I think the number one thing we are called to stand against is the law. The old covenant. Let me put a simple definition on that right now. See, old covenant thinking... All right, old covenant thinking is the more put together I am, the more valuable I am. Or to put some Christian language on it, old covenant thinking would be, I must make myself holy in order for me to be worthy to draw near to God's presence or to be accepted in the church. That's old covenant thinking. Right? That's a law-based faith and system. And we as the church, in every single culture of the world, we are addicted to it. 
We are addicted to it. We default to this kind of thinking. I must complete the checklist in order for me to be valuable, accepted, in order for me to be welcomed. I, if I don't complete the checklist, then I must keep a distance. It's old covenant thinking. We're addicted to it. Our whole world is addicted to this. Right? So it's the very thinking that says, okay, because of the things that I did this past week, I don't feel like I can pray or approach God. Old covenant thinking. All right, because of what happened this past week, I feel like I should distance myself from the church. That's old covenant thinking. Uh, Because I haven't read my Bible in a while and been really good about my quiet time, then I feel distant from God. I feel like my relationship with God is now rocky because I haven't been living up to this standard. That's old covenant thinking, and it sends people to hell. It's the number one thing I think we need to stand against as the church. I was just, as I just said, in the Dominican Republic last week with a group from our church, and we were walking through some, uh, these, they called these uh, batets, or these Haitian villages of Haitian people, and uh, because there's millions of Haitians in the Dominican Republic, and so we're walking through these villages, we're talking to people, we're sharing the gospel, we're praying over people, and we would talk to person after person after person, and we'd ask them about faith. And, and faith is very much integrated into their culture. So lots and lots of people will say, yeah, 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 I believe in God, or, or yeah, I think church is a good thing. But person after person after person, no, 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 I can't go to the church. I don't listen to the right music. I can't go to the church. I don't live with someone that I'm married to, and so they won't let me in. I can't think about following God because I'm not doing these things. This is a transcultural thing. It's not just an American thing. Every culture, we're addicted to old covenant thinking. And as you know, we've been in a sermon series called Formed. This is week seven. It's a 10-week discipleship journey, really, where we're talking about what does it mean to have Christ-like character in us, that, that Jesus wants to form in us Christ-like character as his followers and as his people. So we've just been walking through, well, what does that really look like? And this morning, as we go into week seven, what we're going to be talking about is how Jesus wants to form in us new covenant thinking, a new covenant way of looking up to God, a new covenant way of interacting with other people and getting rid of the old covenant way of interacting with people and thinking about God. And so we're gonna go to Matthew chapter nine to study this, to see what's going on so that we can all understand. I think this is gonna get really simple, really quick but we got to wade through some things that God is doing in and through Jesus when he was here walking around in the flesh. So if you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 9, and what we're going to do is we're going to read several stories uh, about Jesus and some of Jesus' teaching, and it's going to demonstrate for us what is new covenant thinking. Again, we'll put definitions on that. And what it looks like for us to stand against old covenant thinking. So Matthew chapter nine, I'm gonna start in the beginning of the chapter. We're just gonna read the first story we, he, we see here in uh, verses one to eight. 
And getting into a boat, so this is Jesus, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic, lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and he went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Okay, so in Matthew chapter 9, right, Jesus is new on the scene, but he's already done his Sermon on the Mount. He's already gone about and healed people and and done these miraculous signs. And so word is starting to get about around about this new teacher on the scene who teaches with such authority. I mean, he had already given this Sermon on the Mount. So word's going around, and the Pharisees don't really like this guy. They have their eye on this guy. And so in this story, what, what happens? So Jesus is teaching, and so these people want to bring a paralytic to him. And so they, you know, they find their way to do it. They lower this guy before Jesus. And, and what does Jesus do? Well, he does a few things that make the Pharisees uncomfortable. Number one, he says, your sins are forgiven, as if he had the authority to forgive sins. Another thing that Jesus does is he calls him his son. He says, you, my son, your, your sins are forgiven. And the third thing he does is he heals him of being paralyzed. This guy gets up and, and goes home. And what's the basis by which Jesus does these things? The, the text tells us, it says that when Jesus saw their, plural, Faith. Whose faith? Well, I'm I'm guessing it's the faith of the men that are lowering him to the ground and the faith of the paralytic himself. He saw their faith in him, their need for him, their desire for Jesus' mercy and ministry. And on the basis of that, he forgives sins and he heals him of being paralyzed. And so what do the Pharisees do? They look at all of this and they say, this man is blaspheming. He's claiming to be God, number one, because he's declaring to forgive sins. And the other thing that I think made them uneasy is, wait, 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 hold on. Forgiveness of sins, you're calling him your son, you're blessing him with this miraculous healing. What has this man done to deserve this from you? Right, This whole scene is messing with their entire religious philosophy and system. Right? No, 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 no. There is a process of things. There is a list of things we must do and complete and check off before we get any of those benefits. Keep going in our text. Let's read the next story. I think we'll, we'll see the same kind of unease amongst the Pharisees. Uh, Look at verses 9 to 13. 
As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So just picture, you know, table, lots of food, good conversation, laughing, enjoying one another's presence and company. Verse 11, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. All right, so Jesus is this popular teacher. Jesus is performing all of these miraculous works that the Pharisees have their eye on him, and this scene just does not compute with their religious operating system. Like, wait, wait, Jesus, you're in a house with people who are unclean. You're in a house with people who don't deserve to be communed with. And you're eating at a table, and you're doing it with tax collectors. Like, tax collectors, these are Jews that have now become employed by Rome, the occupying force of the land, and are now ripping off their own countrymen and sending taxes to Rome and pocketing what they put on top. So like these are, these are uh, traitors. And they're like, wait, wait, wait. Jesus, you're, you're fellowshipping with people who don't deserve God's love, forgiveness, salvation, acceptance. It just doesn't compute with their operating system. And so Jesus sees this and he says to them, we read it in verse 13. Hey, go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but to call the sinners. Jesus, what he's saying is, I'm operating on a different system than you guys are. Old covenant thinking is what the Pharisees are operating off of. And Jesus is operating off of a different system, new covenant. He's doing something completely different. And so what we see here is where the old covenant would be about making sacrifices to God, doing things to God to curry his favor, the new covenant is actually about God's mercy. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Where the old covenant would be about being righteous, making myself righteous before God. God, I, I now can earn your favor because I've done everything I need to do to be righteous. The, the new covenant is about God approaching the sinner. I came for the sinner, not the righteous. It's a different operating system. And it doesn't compute. These things don't mix. And that's exactly the point of our next few verses, verses 14 to 17. It says, then the disciples of John, that's John the Baptist, so the guys who were following him, came to Jesus saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. 
No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. You're like, okay, where is... Jesus going with all of this. Jesus is talking about the differences between the old covenant and the new covenant and how they do not mix. They are not the same thing. So the uh, disciples of John come up and say, hey, how come your disciples don't fast? Well, there's only really one day out of the year in the law that the people of God are called upon to fast. It's the day of atonement. But... What we know from Second Temple Judaism, what we know from the way Judaism was practiced of the day, that most devout Jews fasted twice a week. This was part of their rhythm. That's probably what John's disciples were doing. And so they're wondering, wait, wait, wait. Hey, we've been watching you guys, following you around. You don't fast like we fast. What's up with that? Because that kind of practice, that kind of you know, religious regiment they were on was part of their system of how we get God's favor. This is how we make sure that we are acceptable to God. Our, our fasting regiment is about making sure that, that God is pleased with us and Jesus is just not operating off of that. He's not teaching his disciples, this is how you get right with God. And so his disciples aren't fasting. But he does then begin to teach on how the old covenant doesn't mix with the new. Right, so you get these two illustrations. He's like, I wouldn't take a fresh patch, like fresh piece of cloth that's been unshrunk, hasn't been washed yet, and sew that onto an old piece of cloth that has a hole in it. Because if I did that, when I wash the whole garment again, that fresh patch is going to shrink and it's going to rip the garment even more. See, this fresh thing doesn't mix with the old. You can't put them together. They're separate. Or I wouldn't take new wine, fresh wine that still needs to be fermented, and that fermentation process is going to generate gas, and put it in an old wineskin that's cracked and hard and doesn't, isn't able to expand anymore because if I ferment it in there, it's going to burst the wineskin. No, I need to put it in a fresh wineskin that can expand and contract. They don't mix. This is Jesus' point. That the old covenant, this idea that I must do whatever I need to do to be holy and righteous before God in order for him to draw near to me, that doesn't mix with new covenant thinking. Right? Old covenant is I must make myself holy in order to draw near to God. But the new covenant is God draws near to me and makes me holy. So there's a difference. Old covenant is I must make myself holy so I can draw near to God. And new covenant thinking is, no, God has drawn near to me and he is going to make me holy. Paul talks about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. <clears throat> Let's read this together. Verses, I'm just going to read verses 4 to 9. Look at what Paul says. He says, Such is the confidence 
that we have through Christ toward God. Here's, here's your confidence. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. I can't make myself holy. Nothing good comes from me, right? Verse six, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, not of the law, but of the spirit. For the letter, the law, kills. But the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, that's what Paul's calling the old covenant, by the way. So if you're like, Alan, you're going pretty strong against the old covenant. I'm just following Paul's example, right? He calls it the ministry of death. I lost my place. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, we're talking about Sinai here, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, old covenant, law, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. What, what's Paul saying? The old covenant, that's the ministry of death. That's the ministry of condemnation. It is over. There's a new covenant now that's better, has even more glory attached to it. And it's different. And he calls it the ministry of the Spirit. So we'll get to that. But, but why does Paul call the law, the old covenant, the ministry of, of death? What's even the purpose of this? Like, why would God even do that? Romans 3.20, I'll just read it from the screen. If you pop it up there for me. Paul defines it. He says this, For by works of the law, old covenant, no human being will be justified in this sight. It won't work. You won't be made right with God through the old covenant. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The purpose of the old covenant was to actually demonstrate to us that there is nothing that we could do to be made right with God. That, that we didn't have the strength, we didn't have the righteousness, we didn't have even the nature to be able to live in a way that would be holy and acceptable to God. Something far more intense would need to happen for us to be made right with God. And so that's the purpose of the Old Covenant. But the New Covenant, Paul calls it, here in 2 Corinthians 3, the ministry of the Spirit or the ministry of righteousness. We actually get um, in the Old Testament, God says this is what he's going to do. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. How far do I want to read through verse 33? God says through Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. God says in Jeremiah right here that what he's going, that the old covenant's not gonna work. Isn't gonna do it. 
And so God's going to have to do something. God's going to have to step in by the Spirit and give us righteousness, give us holiness, write the law on our hearts. In other words, grow us in holiness, make us holy. God says, I'm going to do that for you. And so as we, we're not going to read all of Matthew 9, but if you continue in Matthew 9, after Jesus talks about the differences between the old and new, you just get this demonstration of this new kind of ministry and thinking. If you do verses 18 to, to uh, let's see, 26, I won't read it, but Jesus is approached by a synagogue ruler about his daughter who has died and he goes and he resurrects her and, and the synagogue ruler just comes and, and asks Jesus for his mercy and then a woman who's had this bleeding disorder just touches the fringe of his garment just pleading for mercy and Jesus sees her and heals her and you get stories of Jesus healing the blind men and Jesus healing someone who's unable to speak and the pattern we see here in Jesus' ministry is people coming to Jesus and asking for mercy, either for themselves or on the behalf of someone else, and that's all Jesus needs to intervene, to act, to show mercy in grace. It's a new kind of thinking. He's demonstrating the new covenant here. God having compassion on people and showing mercy to others. Other people having compassion on others and coming to Jesus and asking for mercy. And so after all of that, the end of our chapter here in Matthew 9, Jesus has a mission he wants to send his church on. Look at verses 35 to 38. And Jesus went through all of the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and affliction. So read, Jesus is teaching the new covenant, and he is demonstrating the new covenant. When he saw the crowds, verse 36 He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What the Bible teaches us is that the death of and resurrection of Jesus Christ inaugurates this new covenant. That in and through Jesus, because of what he did on the cross to forgive us of our sins, and because he rose again from the dead, giving him complete power over life and death, and because he puts his spirit in us to generate holiness in us, to write the law on our hearts as he said he would do. Jesus does all of this and it inaugurates a new covenant, a new way of relating with God that I now realize that God is drawn near to me and he's making me holy if I will receive him. And this is the new covenant. And God has chosen, we read this in 2 Corinthians 3, God has chosen to minister this new covenant 
through the church. Through you and me. It said, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, that you and I, what does he call us? Ministers of the new covenant. That's who we are. That's the, the calling we've been given. That's the mission that we've been given, to minister this new covenant to the world around us. And what that's going to require is that we adopt the same heart towards people that Jesus had. That we adopt the same heart towards people that he demonstrated. Or as Matthew 9 verse 36 would say, the same kind of compassion that Jesus had on the crowds. He has called his church to adopt and to then use that to be ministers of a new covenant. We are called to have as God's people, as a part of our character, new covenant compassion. Now, I just want to ask, like, what is new covenant compassion? What is that? Well, what I read here from the scripture is that new covenant compassion has no prereqs. That when you saw Jesus going about, there was no prereqs there. Yeah, I'll dine in your house. Yeah, I, I, I will show compassion to you. I'll have mercy upon you. Like, Jesus didn't go about and and ask people to say a sinner's prayer before he showed them compassion. Jesus didn't go to understand what their potential ideology was before he showed compassion. Jesus didn't assess their motives before he showed compassion. There was no prereqs. That the prereq to receive the compassion of Jesus was essentially they're, they're human made in God's image. And yes, they need to receive his mercy. They need to understand their need for his mercy but it wasn't anything that they did to earn his love and his compassion. This is new covenant compassion. We see Jesus move toward the lost, the sinful, the broken, the poor, the hurting, the oppressed, tax collectors, frauds, criminals, prostitutes. We see him draw near to all of these people with new covenant compassion. Like New Covenant Compassion it isn't worried that you might get taken advantage of. New Covenant Compassion isn't worried that you might be guilty by association with certain people. New Covenant Compassion isn't worried if the religious leaders will approve of what they're doing. New Covenant Compassion doesn't have a political calculus attached to it. It's not worried if it will kill the vibe of our church. It doesn't get distracted with the debates of the culture over what social justice is and what it's not. It's not calculated like that. New Covenant Compassion is willing to sacrifice comfort, familiarity, resources, social standing, political power even, so that the lost and the broken and the hurting and the oppressed can experience the love and the mercy of Jesus. And God is calling his church to take a stand against old covenant thinking, old covenant culture, old covenant ways of looking at people, treating people, old covenant thinking that turns churches into factories of shame instead of factories of mercy. My question for the church, not Grace Hill alone, but the, the church all over, is what covenant are we declaring to the world? 
as they look upon the things we preach and the things we say and the things we support and the way we treat each other and the way we treat our neighbors? What covenant are we displaying to the world? Are we displaying an old covenant that says you are only valuable based on how put together you are? You're only valuable based off if you agree with us in all the things that we think or not. There's a lot of things you're going to have to clean up before you'll be accepted into our social circles. Or are we declaring to the world a a new covenant thinking that is led out with new covenant compassion, radical compassion? I mean, this, this idea right here, this kind of character that Jesus wants to form in us, this compassion, This is really the aim and the heart of this entire formed series because this is the call that Jesus has sent us on. When he says that the harvest is ready, but the laborers are few, I don't think he's just saying, who are the people willing to go share their faith? I think it's that. But who are the people willing to go out and show the kind of compassion that Christ has shown us on people? And I don't know about you, but I'm sick and tired of the way the church keeps displaying itself to this world. I'm sick and tired of how we engage in the political conversation. I'm sick and tired of all of the moral arguments and all of the ways that we shame people when the very call that would have been placed upon us is that we would be ministers of the new covenant, not ministers of the old And it makes me proud of you because when I see this church, and this is by God's grace, I see a compassionate people. I see people who love this town well. I see people who are welcoming to anyone who walks through those doors, no matter what's going on in their life. I see people who give space for one another. That's the very thing that Christ has called his church to do. And so I just want to close with just asking the question, okay, what does it look like to grow in compassion? Because here's the thing about compassion, and I've taught a lot about this, um, so you've heard me say this before. But when, when we read the word compassion in the Gospels, so here in Matthew 9 and other places, the Greek word there is splagnizomai, and it literally means a lurch of the bowels. Compassion, compassion is an automatic response of your soul and your body before your mind even knows what is happening. Compassion is when your body sees something, a person, a situation, and it kind of lurches in desire to help, care, serve, before your mind can even attach language to what's going on inside of you. That's what compassion is. It's not a switch we can turn on and off. We're like, none of us can wake up tomorrow morning and be like, I'm gonna be a compassionate person today. No, it's something that's grown in us. It's something that Jesus wants to form in us. And so how does Jesus form that? I got two quick things as we end. But the first thing, I think how we best grow compassion is we need to develop a habit of being really slow to speak, really quick to listen, and very curious of people's stories. You know, as I read these 
scriptures that we just read in Matthew 9 and, and others throughout the Gospels, I often wonder, like, what was going on inside Jesus? Because Jesus is the all-knowing God. So as the paralytic was being lowered before him, Jesus knew his story. Jesus knew his childhood. Jesus knew everything, good, bad, whatever, indifferent has happened to him. He, he knew all of him. He knew the stories of the men who had lowered him. He knew their relationship and how far back it went. He knew the love and the care and the longing that these men had for their friend to be whole and to be able to walk again. I mean, so he had all of that information. And so compassion is the reaction of his body. Or when the woman reaches out to touch his garment, he immediately, he knows her story. He knows how long she's been suffering. He can feel every single time she was shunned by the religious leaders. And the hurt and the distance that she felt from God because of how they shepherded her. He can feel all that. When Jairus, the synagogue ruler, came to get Jesus because his daughter was dying, he could feel how much he loved his daughter. He knows his whole story. So I just imagine, like, how did Jesus walk around and he just sees each person and he knows everything has gone on, everything that you're feeling, everything that, that it has shaped and formed you. He knows it. And I think it fuels his compassion. And I think one of the ways that we can follow Jesus is by being really slow to speak, really quick to listen, very curious of one another's stories. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor and a minister I've sat down with someone to talk about something going on in their life and I hear their story and it just grows my compassion for them. It does not grow my judgment. Never. And so I think this practice, and again, as you know, we've been doing this in our community groups. It's for this reason. It's as we learn each other's stories, as we're curious about the stories of our neighbors, of the people that we're called to be ministers of the new covenant to, it grows compassion in us that they would experience the love of Christ. That's the first thing. The second thing, I think, that we need to be able to grow compassion, this kind of compassion, is I think we need to daily remind ourselves of the very compassion that we have received from God. See, I think when we lack compassion for others around us, it's a moment where we are forgetting the kind of compassion that has already been shown to us in Christ. That the reality of the new covenant is saying, there is nothing that I have done that caused God to go, look at him. Let's bring him on in. No, all of who I am is God coming after me in his grace, in his mercy, while I was still sinning, while I was an enemy of God, while I was dead in my trespasses and sin, Christ died for me. And so it's a lapse of our memory when we lack compassion for others of what Christ has done for us. And it's the very reason why in the church we have this practice of doing communion on a regular basis. Because that's what this is designed for. That when you approach this table, you're reminded of the radical compassion that Christ has had on you. See, on the night that Christ was arrested and betrayed and went to the cross, he was with his disciples 
They were enjoying a meal together. Jesus took bread and he broke it. And Jesus said to him, this bread is my body. And I'm going to allow my body to be crushed for you so that you wouldn't experience God's wrath upon you for your sin. I'll take that for you because I love you. And the old covenant's not gonna work. There's nothing you, you can do. You gotta let me do this. You gotta let me go to the cross and come after you and he took a glass of wine and he raised it. And he said, this wine is my blood. And he says, it's a new covenant. That this wine represents the blood that I'm gonna shed upon the cross. And what that's gonna do is cleanse you and make you righteous. If you remember, 2 Corinthians 3 said that the new covenant was a ministry of righteousness. I'm gonna give you righteousness. You're not going to produce that on your own. Why? Because I love you. And you can't do it. The only way this works is if you let me go to the cross and die for your sins. And all that we're called to do is to receive that from Jesus, to recognize, Jesus, I cannot do